Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. From Yahoo News, a follow-up on those missing Alaskan crabs. Now, we talked about this before on the podcast, right? We had billions of snow crabs that disappeared from the ocean around Alaska in recent years. Finally, scientists now say they know why. Uh Any guesses? I mean, it's probably too optimistic to hope that they found them somewhere, didn't they? (laughs) Like, that didn't happen. Yeah, it's not going to be like a fire sale at Tom Thumb on tons of Alaskan snow crap. No, sorry. Unfortunately, it is as predictable as you might expect. Warmer ocean temperatures likely cause them to starve to death. Oh. And yeah, the finding comes just days after the Alaska Department of Fish and Game announced the snow crab harvest season was again being canceled for the second year in a row. And they cited the overwhelming number of crabs missing from the typically (laughs) frigid, treacherous waters of the Bering Sea. Cody Zawalski, lead author of the study and fishery biologist at NOAA, said, When I received the 2021 data from the survey for the first time, my mind was just blown. Everybody was just kind of hoping and praying that that was an error in the survey and next year you would see more crabs. And then in 2022, it was more of a resignation that this is going to be a long road. For the study, scientists analyzed what could have triggered the disappearance of the snow crabs beginning in 2020, and they boiled it down to two categories, which we pretty much covered, right? Maybe the snow crabs moved (laughs) or they died. So they looked north of the Bering Sea, west toward Russian waters, and even into deeper levels of the oceans and couldn't find them, ultimately concluded it was unlikely that the crabs moved and that the mortality event is probably a big driver. And the reason behind the mortality event? Well, warmer ocean water wreaks havoc on their metabolism and it effectively increases their caloric needs. So, for example, the amount of energy crabs needed from food in 2018, the first year of a two-year marine heat wave in the region, may have been as much as quadruple compared to the previous year, according to what researchers found. It's like it turned them all into teenage boys. Like they suddenly had to eat constantly. (laughs) Yeah, because they're burning it up. Everything they're eating, they're burning it up just from ambient and body temperature. And not only that, other species took advantage of this crappy situation because normally there's a temperature barrier in the ocean that prevents species like Pacific cod from reaching the crab's extremely cold habitat. Mm. But when you get a heat wave, Pacific cod were able to get to these warmer than usual waters. And mm, what's that? A little bit of crab for me to snack on? Yep, they'd clean the rest of it up. So even though we were thinking of 2018 and 2019 as an extreme anomaly in sea ice in the Bering Sea, something we'd never seen before, there was maybe 4% of the coverage of ice that we've historically seen. And to know whether or not that's going to continue going forward, big old question mark. Yeah. Hard to say. I mean, we can kind of assume it has. Like, that's the depressing part is like, we're just now figuring out, oh, in 2021, they all died. It's 2023. Like, it hasn't gotten better since then. It's gotten worse. So I think we can just say we're not eating snow crabs ever again. But we get more cod. 
Like if you like cod, I guess. <laughs> Listen, if you're into fish and chips, this is your era. <laughs> right. Well, and doesn't everything I seem to remember evolve into crabs at some point? That's in time true. Too? Carsonization. Uh-huh. Yeah, we'll just get different crabs. Yeah, cod crabs. <laughs> cod crabs. <laughs> <laughs> that actually sounds tasty for a made-up animal. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from Inverse.com, and it's titled, Scientists Accidentally Created Material for Superfast Computer Chips. Ac- oh, accidentally? Well, <laughs> yay? Yeah. You know, science, sometimes it's a mistake. Right. Yep. In more ways than one. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I chose my words very intentionally. Yeah, yeah. So chemists accidentally invented an unusual new material that could make the next generation of computer chips much faster. The material is a molecule made of rhenium, selenium, and chlorine, and it's called RE6SE8Cl2. Its inventors say that a computer chip made with, I'll just call it recycle for now, <laughs> could transfer information twice as fast as one made with silicon. Oh. And surprisingly, that's because it slows electrons down instead of speeding them up. Huh. So Columbia University chemist Jack Tuliag and his colleagues published their work in the journal Science. When Tuliag and his colleagues brought their weird new molecule into chemist Xavier Roy's lab, they weren't expecting it to do very much. They just <laughs> wanted to test the resolution of the Roy lab's new microscope on it. <laughs> but Recycle surprised everyone by conducting electricity. And in fact, its ability to conduct electricity was somewhere between that of a copper wire and an insulator like rubber. The material was, in other words, what physicists call a semiconductor, the backbone mm-hmm. of modern electronics. Mm. The best-known semiconductor today is silicon. If you connect a sliver of silicon to an electric current and then peer deep inside of it using, uh, you know, magic subatomic vision, as one does, (laughs) you would see atoms vibrating slightly. All matter does this all the time. It's what creates heat. And as you watch, you can see all that vibration spawning strange tiny particles called phonons. You may be more familiar with photons, Mm -hmm. the tiny wave-like particles that carry the energy in light. Phonons are like photons, except they carry heat or vibrational mechanical energy. Hmm. So, going back to the silicon sample, electrons are zipping around at mind-boggling speed, as they do. So, it looks like silicon should be conducting electricity super fast. But when an electron bumps into a photon, it bounces off, pinging wildly in a new direction. So, it takes them longer than you'd expect to get from point A to point B. Hmm. And that's why Recycle is such a big deal. Electrons move more slowly through it, so that when they bump into phonons, they don't bounce off, they stick. Together, the electron and the phonon form a new particle called an acoustic exciton polaron, or just a polaron for short. Polarons don't move as fast through recycle as electrons move through silicon, but they take a more direct path, so they get from point A to point B twice as quickly. Huh. Technically, computer chips made with Recycle could have processing speeds in the femtoseconds, which is about a million times faster than the nanosecond speeds of today's processors, but there is a very big catch, unfortunately. Hmm. Rhenium is one of the rarest elements there you on go. Earth. Yep, yeah, uh-huh. Sand, on the other hand. Yeah, we got <laughs> yeah. a lot of that. <laughs> so, making computer chips out of it is always going to be much too expensive to even think about, but... Toliag and his colleagues say they've learned enough from Recycle and its unusual properties to go looking for other materials that could do the same thing. Hmm. Columbia University chemist Milan Delore, senior author of the recent study, said, 
There's a whole family of two-dimensional semiconductor materials out there with properties favorable for acoustic polaron formation. Yeah. Right. I mean, however rare it is, they had enough in that lab to throw some together and look at it. Yeah. And who knows, maybe we'll end up using Recycle for, you know, only the most crazy, powerful scientific supercomputers or, or whatever. Or we'll find a way to synthesize it. Yeah. The mm-hmm. government will have it, but you won't, basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just like old times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Okay. This is from The Guardian. If that last story was a bit rough... Are our short attention spans really getting shorter? Yes, 100%. Wait, sorry, what What did you just say? <laughs> so in 2008, U.S. tech journalist Nicholas Carr asked, is Google making us stupid? <laughs> the answer is a little more complex than just our gut yes mm-hmm. reaction, right? Distraction is everywhere, and so are its antidotes. Apps such as Paw Block offering cute animal pictures instead of your social media fix, and screen modes such as Microsoft's Focus are the tech versions of mindfulness, the panacea for all our modern ills. Sure. Yeah, sure. I agree. (laughs) Behind our worries about distractions and their remedies are two connected assumptions. First is that our distractiveness is both recent and negative, and second, that our concentration was better in the past. So Carr recollects that formerly he would read immersively, engaging deeply with narrative, like a scuba diver. (laughs) Now he's a jet ski skimming across the surface at speed. It's a compelling and recognizable assessment. Feels right, but as we all know, what feels right isn't necessarily so. Comparing our concentration with an idealized recent past misses the fact that our attention has always been structured by the wider context. And with what we used to call free time, some of our nostalgic assumptions there also might need a bit looking into. Immersive concentration in, say, reading was never actually a default. Hmm. Deep concentrated reading was a consequence of new tech, the printing press and the novel. Ah. When long form prose started to emerge from printing presses, they and the time they promised to eat up prompted something like a moral panic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, now we fret, obviously, about children not reading, except if they're reading a banned book, of course. Right. Um, <laughs> but right, our forebears were panicking that they did, diagnosing them with novel addiction <laughs> and worrying that they might copy the actions of their fictional heroes. And who's most susceptible? Children and women. Yep. Yeah. yeah. We just mm-hmm. can't think for ourselves. And what are we going to yeah. do? Read a book to learn how to do that? <laughs> Yep. The female novel reader reclining in an armchair was a focus for a sort of disapproval directed towards couch potatoes today. Mm-hmm. As the philosopher and early feminist Hannah Moore put it, women's focus on reading served, quote, to feed habits of improper indulgence and nourish a vain and visionary indolence, mm-hmm. which lays <laughs> the mind open to air and the heart to seduction. <laughs> wow. So. When the novel was due, deep immersive reading was not seen as superior concentration, but was feared as a means to disconnect impressionable readers from the real world, Hmm. damaging effects on their posture, eyesight, (laughs) and morality. I mean, that's still a concern with smartphones as well, right? Tech neck, we even have a term for it. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I actually once read a book 
called How to Read a Book, and their explicit <laughs> recommendation was that you should skim the entire thing, look at the table of contents, figure out whether or not the book is actually valuable to your time, mm. and then you go in for successive layers mm. of deep reading and trying to contextualize everything. That's triple the effort, I feel like. Oh, yeah, definitely. But it's a really effective way to learn and to figure out what you want, because a lot of the time you're just going to stop at the table of contents. Or you'll be like, oh, I only need to read these headings and I'll skim the other stuff to mm -hmm. make sure I didn't miss anything important. But, you know, you have to make the decision of what parts of something are relevant to your life. Like, it's not always going to be like this entire book is valuable, every single word and sentence, you know, like that's Ooh, fiction readers unusual. disagree. <laughs> yeah, right. Depends what you're reading for. I yeah. Guess. I mean, at the end of the day, we still have 24 hours in a day, just like they used to. Yeah. And you can't read everything. We just have an awareness now that there's more than we can ever possibly pay attention to. Yay. And there's a bummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next one comes from SciTech Daily, and it's called Mind-Blowing Cancer Discovery. Common chemotherapy drugs don't work like doctors thought. Don't. So this is a new study out of the University of Wisconsin on a drug called Paclitaxel, or its brand name Taxol which is used to treat malignant tumors all over the body, but especially in the lungs and ovaries. It's been around since 1971 and was originally derived from the Pacific yew tree, though nowadays, of course, we use a synthetic version. And because this is one of those OG drugs that was originally a natural compound, we didn't actually know how it worked in the beginning. We just knew through anecdotal evidence and then experimental confirmation that it did work. It wasn't until a couple decades later, in the early 90s, that researchers really tried to nail down what Taxol was doing to the tumors, largely because they wanted to look for other compounds that might potentially work by the same mechanism. So they put some tumor cells in a Petri dish, flooded it with Taxol, and saw that the cancer cells were no longer able to go through mitosis, or cell division. So they were like, cool, we have to halt mitosis, that's the key. And they spent huge amounts of money and time trying to come up with new compounds that would interfere with cellular mitosis. The problem was most of them didn't work. Hmm. We've actually had very little success in coming up with new chemotherapy drugs compared to drugs for other diseases. And that's part of why chemotherapy still has all these horrible side effects, right? It's because we've tried and tried, but so far we've only been able to come up with a handful of drugs that are even as effective as this thing we stumbled on by accident in the 70s. So. Oncology professors Beth Weaver and Mark Burkhard decided to go back to the drawing board and take a second look at how Taxol really worked, which was actually pretty revolutionary because the idea that Taxol interfered with mitosis was settled knowledge. As Weaver put it, quote, This is what I was taught as a graduate student. We all knew this. Labs all over the world have shown this. The problem was we were all using it at concentrations higher than those that actually get into the tumor. Because when she and Burkhart took tumor cells from patients who had already been treated with Taxol and measured how much of the drug had actually been absorbed, they found it was way less than we thought. And when they put those lower concentrations of Taxol into a Petri dish of untreated cancer cells, they saw a completely different mechanism happening. Hmm. It turns out Taxol in the body does not stop mitosis. What it does is cause abnormal mitosis. So the way mitosis normally works is the chromosomes duplicate and then they move to opposite ends of the cell in a process called chromosomal segregation. Once the two sides are fully isolated, the cell starts to pinch in the middle until the walls touch and now you have two cells. But how do the chromosomes know where to go? 
The answer is a skinny piece of cell machinery called a mitotic spindle, which has two ends called spindle poles. And you can think of it kind of like a giant double arrow, where every chromosome gets pulled one way or the other to the nearest pole. And what Taxol does is cause the mitotic spindle to develop extra poles. So the chromosomes are scrambled all over the place instead of being in two neat groups. That means that when the cell divides, the new cell's DNA is very likely to be incomplete. And in most cases, this causes the new cell to simply die. According to Weaver, a cell only needs to lose about 20% of its DNA to become non-viable. She concluded, quote, We've been barking up the wrong tree. We need to refocus our efforts on screwing up mitosis rather than stopping it. Which is admittedly always a fun position to come from, right? Not how can I make this work, but how can I break this? I feel like science <laughs> is much better at breaking things. But then again, we've been trying to break mitosis as a process for a long time and have not succeeded. So A new angle, yeah. though, I see it as. Yeah, it is good news. It's just a question of like... How much was wasted? I don't know. I always get a little salty about people saying it's settled science. Science is never settled. We're always wrong. We were always idiots and we will be idiots again. And you always got to check your assumptions, you know, and maybe save a life. Like, <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. It's time to take a little departure with the hustle as we look into the wild business of desert island tourism. Mm. Have you ever dreamed of being a castaway? Because there's an industry to cater to your desire. For wow. example, Ben Saul Garner paid around $3.7,000 to be abandoned on a remote island <laughs> in Indonesia. This 33-year-old entrepreneur flew from his home city of London to Jakarta. Then he boarded another flight to a regional airport. A car service drove him to a pier where he climbed on a janky speedboat and hummed across the ocean for 90 minutes until he reached an uninhabited mass of land covered in palm trees and dense brush. The boat turned around and left, and Saul Gardner remained marooned there for 10 days alone and nearly resourceless. He slept in a hammock, subsisted on coconuts and crab, and spent his days foraging for firewood. Quote, you actually realize just how much time you have in a day when you remove all distractions. There's something about just being in nature and going back to basics that I love. And he, like you could if you wanted to, booked this experience with a company called Do Castaway. And it is a company that caters to travelers looking for extreme isolation. And there's got to be such a liability contract to work with that. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah, there are definitely papers and waivers that you got to sign. Yeah. But this has been going on for a little bit now. It was founded in 2010 by Alvaro Cerezo, a restless soul from Malaga, Spain. He spent his summer days exploring the Alboran Sea's rocky beaches and secret coves, and by the age of eight, he was venturing offshore in an inflatable raft. Ooh. Quote, I always dreamed about going beyond the horizon, and I knew that as soon as I had freedom, I'd see what was out there. He's the son of an engineer and a government administrator, and he was encouraged to get an economics degree in college, but... Between his studies, he was going off to Asia, he would pay a few bucks to hop on a fishing vessel bound for a remote island, and it was just, it became his obsession. Hmm. He quickly turned his obsession into an extensive knowledge of Indonesia, the Philippines, Polynesia, Micronesia. After he graduated, he was like, okay, how can I make a living out of this hobby? Because, quote, 
I wanted to do this every day of my life. I had no idea if there were others out there who wanted to travel to these remote islands, but I thought I'd find out. So in 2010, he launched Do Castaway and billed his service as an escape from the clutter and digital chaos of the modern world. And the timing for this service was pretty fortuitous because interest in extreme wilderness tourism was booming in 2010. There were TV shows like Man vs. Wild or Survivor mm. Man and tons of YouTube channels dedicated to bushcraft. That's the keyword here. <laughs> wilderness survival skills like foraging, building natural shelters, starting fires, and mm. the demand started to grow. And that's when he really had to improve the experience. So how do you improve the experience of a castaway desert dumped? island? Yeah. <laughs> say, make sure there's a conch there and whoever's holding the conch right. can be the only person talking. Right. Well, right. in this case, it all comes down to finding the perfect islands. And there is an art to it because Cerezo realized early on clients didn't want to go too far to experience mm. true isolation on a remote island. The typical customer only had around eight to 10 days, and they didn't want to spend more than two of those days in actual travel. So an island has to be remote and isolated, but not too remote and isolated. Right. So today he has come to realize that bringing foreign tourists into remote island territories requires a fair bit of politicking, including payments and bribes. And he even says it in a quote, bribes are important because everybody wants <laughs> their peace, right? Yeah, no, somebody's got to own these islands. You can't just be dumping people on the coastline and assuming exactly no one Exactly right. Know. But it's not just the owners who want to cut because here's what the process looks like. So the island owner, it's usually the government or a private owner, is paid around 100 to $150 US for rental of the island for a few days. Then they also have to pay police to prevent issues like pirating or looting to make sure that the <laughs> island is relatively safe. And then local officials are then paid to prevent ordinary fishing vessels or other boats from docking on the island when a client is there. And altogether, these bribes, tips and payments... They cost him around $300 per trip. God, it's all a lie. Like, <laughs> there's tons of people living there, and they're like, just give this guy a little space. <laughs> well, maybe not tons, but enough that even if one person came, they would shatter the right. illusion that these people have paid for, right? And to be fair, these are not Richard Branson types who own these islands. I mean, he obviously owns one, but not the ones that they're using in this right. travel experience. But most of these islands have never even seen a tourist. So the owners are happy to accept any kind of payment they can mm -hmm. get to authorize use for a few days. And yeah, providing clients with the illusion of complete solitude, it's harder than it sounds because even on the most remote islands on Earth, you have to manufacture that isolation. He goes to great lengths to make sure local fishing boats don't come into even view of the island, let mm. alone dock. And this involves setting up a support team on a nearby island to intercept and pay off any boats that float <laughs> too close. And wow. before a client is taken ashore, the island also has to be pre-cleaned of debris so that it has that untouched, right. pristine yeah. appearance. Because let's be real, islands in the middle of the ocean, they're trash magnets. Yeah, they're basically yeah. that one thing floating that'll gather everything. And to be fair, only one out of every 20 islands Cerezo surveys meets his criteria for safety and isolation. So today he offers these island experiences in Polynesia, Indonesia, the Philippines, and Central America. Prices range anywhere from $95 to $400 per night, and the typical trip is around a week. 
As for his profit on the business, quote, very little. I'm never going to get rich with this. I do it because it's my passion. And <laughs> it's an excuse for me to continue exploring different islands. <laughs> over his 13 years of business, he's had over 1,000 clients. They wow. range from entrepreneurs, like we opened the story, to students, to multimillionaires who are looking for a self-reliance test after years of indulging in luxury uh, comforts. Like, yeah. hey, are you still going to survive this apocalypse here? Yeah, it's all a very apocalyptic mindset. It's like, I would be able to survive. It's like, no, you wouldn't. You get two days <laughs> and then the boat comes and picks you up. Well, there are different degrees here. Like, if it sounds too extreme for you, there are options. So if you sign up, you can opt for survival mode, where you get dropped off on the island with barely anything, maybe a machete or a spear gun, and you just got to figure out everything on your own. Or there's something called comfort mode where there is a crew on standby. They've got food, water, shelter, other necessities. They have another mode where they just drop you off in the streets of San Francisco. <laughs> right. With a voucher yeah. for a hotel. With yeah. A voucher for a hotel. Right. Right. Or, or a shelter, and like the urban homelessness experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But everything is difficult on an island. I mean, it sounds like we're making this up, but you have to fight for everything that you get, right? Whether it's something that you're finding or it kind of gets provided for you. <laughs> they hide water for you. <laughs> I found this water bottle. <laughs> we'll scavenger hunt here or there. <laughs> I found this natural occurring toilet paper in the tree. <laughs> <laughs> Only triggers some selective allergies. So listen, right. if you do sign up, you do have disclaimers. You have to accept liability in the mm. case of injury or death. He is clear to say this has not happened yet because, quote, they know it's dangerous. They're alone with no hospitals. If you have to go to a hospital, it's going to be at least four hours to get there. Also, that's in the disclaimer that if it has happened, it, you don't talk about it. Right. <laughs> Automatic NDA. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. we'll never know. <laughs> Possibly not. And yeah, sometimes clients, quote, abandon ship early. Sometimes they'll get extreme sunburn or sickness. Fear, even boredom can be an excuse for people to be like, yeah, already done. Yep. And people go there thinking it's going to be this like Indiana Jones kind of adventure. But it's not like that. A desert island is lonely. And a lot of people simply can't handle being alone. But do Castaway is not the only desert island tourism outfit in town anymore. There is now a UK-based Desert Island Survival is the name of the company, and they offer a similar service geared towards groups. To increase the excitement, since it's survival, you will be hunted on that. Right, island. right. <laughs> By the people that have come with you, right? Yes. <laughs> and perhaps an idea like that could only have come from someone who, quote, was working in finance and totally depressed <laughs> before yeah. starting the company. Mm. I'd always felt like a square peg in a round hole. I wanted to see the untouched parts of Earth and go over the edge of the map. And during an evening of despair, as the article notes, Tom Williams came across Cerezo's company and realized, hey, there was room in the market for another business. Yeah. So for him, his service is less about the transformative experience and the poetry of isolation. And this is more about like boot camp, learning the skills necessary to survive in the wild. So it's an eight-day experience. You get five days of hands-on training with one of the company's survival skill experts and three days of putting those skills to use in survival mode on the island. You will learn how to build a shelter, make rope out of natural fibers, how to source water and food that doesn't kill you. Very important. <laughs> and you can even weave palms into baskets, hats, and beds, which is hilarious because underwater basket weaving was always the right. joke liberal arts course that was cited to me when I went into liberal arts. 
guess what? There's money in it. That's right. Now the finance bros are all into it. Exactly. And these expeditions are made up of groups of individuals, usually solo travelers who don't know each other well, but sometimes there are bachelor parties, father-son trips, corporate retreats. So all in all, the experience with Tom's company costs around $3,000. He says he's done around 50 trips in total, 20 this year alone, and healthy margins. He's reporting 60% profit on there. And his only bottleneck to growing the business finding more islands. Quote, there are beautiful islands in the Philippines, but there are pirates. In Indonesia, Mm -hmm. there are pit vipers. In New Guinea, they've got green mambas that can literally kill you. In fact, he has a risks and dangers tab on his website that elaborates on the various traumas that can be inflicted by monitor lizards, wild pigs, jellyfish, pufferfish, stingrays. And he's also had to contend with another formidable rival reality tv because when shows like survivor and naked and afraid need a shooting location they're going for the same island yeah and they got the money that's right Mm -hmm. yeah it's a limited inventory and the producers can pay handsome rental sums recently william says a very famous youtuber paid seventy thousand dollars to rent an island in panama for a video not only that, previously obscure islands are being privatized and developed at a rapid rate, often mm-hmm. commanding millions of dollars. So it's getting harder to find any place, even a remote desert island, unmarred by the hand of the modern world. But Cerezo, at least, who's 43 now, he's no stranger to a hard journey. He says he plans to be in the desert island business for the rest of his life. Quote, as long as I'm alive, it will be there. I want to make as many people as possible feel like the last person alive on Earth. Destination wedding, anybody? (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from SciTech Daily, and it's titled, Can Sound Waves Help People Quit Cocaine? (gasps) (laughs) I mean, if it's one of those, like, military weapon sound waves, and it just... Or underground social engineering, where suddenly raves are getting people sober? What? Right, right. Unfortunately, it's not quite as exciting (laughs) as either of those, but it is pretty interesting. So the National Institutes of Health has provided $5 million in funding for this innovative approach. The scientists have launched a clinical trial believed to be the first of its kind in the world to test whether low-intensity focused ultrasound can help reprogram brain cells to reduce the desire for cocaine. The non-invasive approach focuses sound waves on a portion of the brain called the insula, thought to play a critical role in multiple forms of addiction. Principal investigator Nasima Daoud Tirin, the director of UVA's Center for Leading Edge Addiction Research, or CLEAR, said, What if we could reverse brain changes caused by drug use? This would change the way we treat addiction as a whole. So, cocaine use has been growing steadily in Virginia for a decade, the researchers note. Overdose deaths jumped by a third from 2019 to 2020 alone. There are currently no medications approved by the Federal Food and Drug Administration that can help people quit. In their new trial, UVA researchers will use focus sound waves to gently massage cells within the insula. The scientists will then see if the approach causes chemical changes in the brain that reduce cravings. Prior studies have already shown that the insula plays an important role in both cocaine cravings and relapse. And further, the researchers note, humans who suffered injuries to the insula were able to quit smoking easily without suffering cravings or relapse, Mm. which is kind of funny. You Mm. just break that part of your brain and and you're good. I mean, I'm sure there's other side effects, so don't just try Like the lobotomy. We just kind of go in there (laughs) and scrape that part around and we're all good. Yeah. It has a couple side effects, but, uh, you know, at least the whatever. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So if this approach 
approach proves safe and effective, patients might one day soon go for a simple outpatient visit and leave with less desire to use cocaine. UVA's trial is recruiting people ages 18 or older who have been diagnosed with cocaine use disorder and who are not trying to give up using cocaine. For more information about the trial, you can visit med.virginia.edu, and the cocaine trial joins an expansive portfolio of research underway at the University of Virginia School of Medicine to explore the vast potential of focused ultrasound to treat serious diseases ranging from cancer to Alzheimer's. Prior research led by UVA's Jeff Elias, MD, and colleagues, for example, paved the way for the FDA to approve high-intensity focused ultrasound to treat both Parkinson's symptoms and essential tremor, a common movement disorder. So this is just to say that, you know, this is starting. I do think it's kind of funny because it's like the more scientifically focused application of that goofy, you know, 441 hertz, whatever, Mm -hmm. brainwave soothing stuff you Mm -hmm. see on YouTube. Well, you're just not turning up the volume high enough, it sounds like. There you go. We need to (laughs) blast it louder. And we can achieve this at home. We don't need a special ray. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This comes from Como News. And we're going to stay with the sound waves. Kidney stone breakthrough procedure at UW called Game Changer for Patients. And this one sparked a particular interest in me as I've had a couple rounds of this already. Oh. (laughs) Once at 17, don't eat too many Flintstone vitamin kids. (laughs) And uh, one just recently. And uh, they let me know there are three more in there, primed to go. Oh, wow. So, Mm -mm. yeah, I'm really excited for this. A groundbreaking (laughs) medical procedure for those with kidney stones will soon be offered at the University of Washington after more than two decades of research. Oh, wow. And oddly, it will also give astronauts the go-ahead they need from NASA to travel to Mars. Ah. I'll circle back to that. Don't worry. Okay. And why is it groundbreaking? It's a procedure to get rid of painful stones while you're awake. No anesthesia needed. The procedure called burst wave uh, lithotripsy, lithotripsy <laughs> uses an ultrasound wand and sound waves to break apart the kidney stone. Ultrasonic propulsion is then used to move the stone fragments out, potentially giving patients relief within 10 minutes or less. <gasps> wow. Game changer mm-hmm. indeed. Seattle resident Mark McKenzie will tell you firsthand the treatment works. He got a chance to take part of the clinical trial just days before he was operated on, and I am jealous. (laughs) Dr. Hall, an emergency medicine doctor at Harborough Medical Center, said this will also change how future patients are treated in the emergency room who show up having no idea they have a kidney stone, which is actually how I found out I had these three stones in waiting. An MRI for another thing. They're just like, hey, guess what? You got three kidney stones in there. It's like, no. (laughs) There are over a million emergency room visits each year for kidney stones, many with stones that they could intervene at the emergency department, which would be groundbreaking, though likely a very expensive ER visit. Yeah. If they could do (laughs) this in a clinic, that would be easier. And it sounds Mm -hmm. like it's a pretty easy technology. It's just that now it's approved. Is that right? Yes. Well, almost approved. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. In order to get it, you still have to go to the University of Washington. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but maybe that flight's worth it, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it would be for not having to have a stent and things like that. So how this comes back to astronauts. Astronauts are at an increased risk of developing a kidney stone 
due to an increase in bone demineralization. Hmm. Does the bone basically dissolve and the calcium reassembles in the form of kidney stones? That's exactly right. Wow. The body releases the excess calcium and yeah, you pick it up as kidney stones. Rude. And they're also dehydrated a lot. Oh, yeah. hmm. So the last thing you'd want on a trip to space, kidney stones. So <laughs> yeah. they're, they're going to bring this device with them. It's NASA is actually who spent more than 10 years and millions in funding wow. on this. Huh. In the meantime, if you don't have the budget to go to the ER, maybe just get into someone's car that's got way too much bass. Yeah, yeah, just just Disclaimer, bouncy, bouncy I'm, road. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, not a guy, I'm, not, I'm not a doctor. That was not good advice. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include NASA's weirdest satellite, the man rescuing Britain's magical glowworms, and mouse embryos grown in space for the first time. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>